0: Some of you may know Jeff already as the campus minister out there in Cookville at Tennessee Tech. i will explain how it is besides just coming down the interstate that uh, he comes to be with us today. Uh, Our church is part of a a larger denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, fondly referred to as the PCA uh, at times. And we are a part of a body known as the Nashville Presbytery. It's a regional little groupings uh, there within that larger denomination. And within that presbytery, the Nashville Presbytery, we have RUF chapters, Reform University Fellowship chapters on various college campuses within this little geographic region. Jeff is the campus minister at Tennessee Tech out in Cookville. Therein is how he is here with us today. That and the fact that he's a dear friend. Come on up, Jeff. And uh, glad to have him here with us today. And uh, thanks for coming. You got him in my Morning. If you'd like, turn in your Bibles to Psalm uh, 23. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's a great psalm. In some ways, it's a really hard psalm because it tells us the truth about ourselves, but it also preaches the gospel to us. It tells us, it points us toward Jesus. So with that, let me read Psalm 23. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes, Lord, um, your word's not fun. It doesn't say things that we necessarily want to think about or hear. And yet your word is what we need. We need you to speak to us the truth about ourselves and about you. Lord, would you do that today? Would you, as we think about these words, would you allow us to taste and see that you really are good? That your grace endures forever. That you are the lover of our soul. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my my favorite stories, and I don't know if I've told it to you before or not. So you might know this story. Uh, it's the story of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You might know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's name because he was the fella who wrote the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. And in addition to being a writer, Conan Doyle was also a prankster of sorts. Uh, at one, he, he tells this story uh, that one day he sent a telegram to 12 of his friends, 12 men of great reputation, sort of pillars in his community, and his message read this, fly at once, all is discovered. Do you know what happened? Within 24 hours, every single one of those men had left the country Think about that. Why is that? Why would 12 men, all upstanding citizens in their community, why would would they leave? Why would they react the way they did to Conan Doyle's message? You would have thought they would have known it was a joke, but they didn't. Why is that? My guess is that each one of these men knew something about themselves that we all know about ourselves. And that's this. We're guilty. We all struggle with sin and guilt. It, guilt is a universal experience. We all live with it. Now, you might think, so what? I mean, guilt is a universal experience. So is breathing. But here's the thing. You need to breathe in order to live. But unresolved guilt is like an acid that slowly eats away at your soul. It is spiritual corrosion, which is why we're looking at Psalm 32 this morning. As we just read, Psalm 32 is a psalm of David, King David, the guy that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. David was the gold standard for Old Testament kings. And yet you might know the story of David, the story of David and Bathsheba, the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah the Hittite. David seduces Bathsheba. And the result is an unplanned pregnancy with another man's wife. In order to cover his sin, David has Uriah murdered. And then he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And then what's interesting is he just sort of goes on his way. Life as usual. Which tells us something very interesting. It tells us that sin has a way of desensitizing us a way of hardening our hearts so that the very last thing that any of us wants to do is take a good, hard look at ourselves and see our sin. And that's exactly what you see in the life of David. But God is gracious. And after who knows how long... God sends Nathan the prophet to David to confront David and David is convicted he is cut to the core and he comes clean he confesses his sin and he finds amazingly grace grace for adultery grace for murder Psalm 32 is David's reflection on that period of time between his original sin and the confrontation of Nathan the prophet. But Psalm 32 is more than simply a reflection It's also a psalm of instruction. That's what Moskul, which if some of you have your Bibles and you see that at the very, very top of the psalm, that's what Moskul means. It is a psalm of instruction, which means this, that David wrote this psalm not just as a reflection on his experience, but he wrote this psalm for you and for me. So what do we learn in these words? Well, for our purposes this morning, the first thing that I want you to see is the effects of, of sin and guilt in our lives as one pastor put it guilt is both intensely powerful and fiercely destructive look at verses three and four david writes when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer what do you see there well the first thing you see is that guilt can actually affect us physically, physiologically. It can affect our bodies. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Does this mean that if I'm sick or if I'm hurt, I must have done something to deserve it? Of course not. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples see a blind man. And they ask Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Do you remember what Jesus how he responded? He said, neither this man nor his parents sin. Neither this man nor his parents sin. But but here is what David is saying. Guilt can affect us physically. You know it experientially. Guilt can rob you of sleep. Guilt Can leave you with ulcers, knots in your stomach. Guilt can express itself in our bodies. That's the first thing we see. The second thing is that guilt doesn't just go away, it just doesn't evaporate, it doesn't go, it doesn't disappear. Time doesn't heal everything. That's what David is saying when he writes, My bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. And we all know this, at least subconsciously. I mean, think about it. What do Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, William Shakespeare's character Lady Macbeth, and Breaking Bad's Jesse Pinkman all three have in common? I'll tell you what they have in common. Guilt. A guilt that just won't go away. And it's something we all know in, in our bones. There's a third thing that we see here about guilt, and that is this. That guilt brings with it a sense of alienation from God. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My wife, Kathy, and I got married when I was in seminary. And like most seminary students, we were really, really poor. But I liked to spend money. And I particularly liked to spend money in the campus bookstore. Kathy knew it. I knew it. We knew that we could do it. And so I went to her and I said, Hey, look, Kathy. Um, I, I, I need to make a promise to you to help me. I need to promise to you that I will not go in the campus bookstore unless you go with me. This was not at her initiation. This was at my initiation. I won't go into the bookstore unless you go with me. Unfortunately, I'm a promise breaker. And on a number of occasions, I found myself looking at books in the campus bookstore and ultimately leaving with book in my hand, and a little less money in our checking account. And every single time this happened, I would almost instantly experience this this sort of invisible barrier between Kathy and myself. I'm, I'm absolutely confident, because she and I talked about this last week, that she had no idea that that barrier was there. But I knew it was there. And the result was that by the end of the day or by the end of the week, I was sitting down with Kathy going, I've done it again. Well, it's the same with God. In Psalm 51, which is a companion psalm to Psalm 32, David says something that is absolutely stunning when you think about it. In verse 4 of Psalm 51, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, Think about that for a minute. David has just seduced Bathsheba, and he has just had her husband murdered. And yet he says to God, Against you, you only have I sinned. How are we supposed to make sense of that? I don't think, I I, I don't think David. Is trying to dismiss or minimize what he's done with Bathsheba or Uriah. But what he is doing is he's pointing out something that, 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 that you and I oftentimes don't really want to think about or admit. It's something that we tend to forget, and it's, it's this that sin has two dimensions. It always has two dimensions. There is a vertical, a horizontal dimension. And then there is a vertical dimension, and what that means is that when you sin against someone, when you sin against your husband or wife, when you sin against your mother or your father, when you sin against your coworker, when you sin against your classmate, you are also always sinning against God. One pastor put it like this, he said, "You do not understand the gravity." of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the written law on your heart or as a breach of the Constitution of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. You have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God Himself. All to say that Any and every sin we commit has both a horizontal and a vertical dimension. It is always a sin that is against God. The last thing we see here is that guilt can also affect us psychologically. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What David is is describing here is is that that sort of that funk, that depression that sort of overwhelms you. That robs you of joy, that saps you when you're struggling with guilt. What's David's point? Why, does it, why so much time on guilt? What he's trying to say is hey, folks, guilt is a much bigger deal than we like to think. And the fact of the matter is, guilt is inevitable. We are all guilty, we are all sinners. So the question isn't are we guilty? But what do we do with our guilt? We all do do something with our guilt, and we are also very clever with the ways in which we try to deal with our guilt. The oldest trick in the book, literally, you see it in Genesis chapter 3, is is to blame shift. Uh, You guys familiar with the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin and Hobbes is probably my all-time favorite comic strip. Farside's pretty close. Um, Calvin and Hobbes is a comic strip about a six-year-old boy and his tiger, his toy, that he imagines is alive. In one strip, Calvin and Hobbes are walking leisurely through the woods. Calvin says this. He says, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. I've got kids. That sounds a lot like my kids, except, yeah, not. Hobbes responds, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. Calvin completely misses Hobbes' point, and he says, I love the culture of victimhood. (laughs) Folks, that is blame-shifting. There's also trying to define sin and guilt away. It's another one of our strategies. The classic example of this is in Dostoevsky's *Crime and Punishment*. *Crime and Punishment* is the story of this man named Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov thinks that all this talk of sin and guilt is just ridiculous. That. I get to decide what's right and wrong. and, And what that means is I get to decide why I feel guilty or when I should feel guilty. But here's the thing. Raskolnikov is wrong, and he discovers it the hard way. Raskolnikov decides that he's going to test his theory by killing a woman. The woman he kills is a bitter, angry, mean old woman. Nobody likes her. She makes everybody's life miserable. And so he kills her. And he is almost instantly suffocated under a blanket of guilt. In fact, his guilt is so overwhelming that when he finally does confess to the murder, he says that he experiences a depth of joy that he's never experienced in all of his life. My point we, we can't simply ignore or define sin and guilt away. A third strategy that we might try to use to, to silence a condemning voice of guilt in our lives is what Jack Miller calls comparative righteousness. Um, think about it like this. Why is reality TV taking over the network? Why do people love to read Gossip newspapers and magazines, wild as magazines by the cash register at the supermarket. It's because we love to see people at their worst. But why? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Comparatively speaking, we seem like we're better than those people, right? We're good, we are moral, we are upright. You won't see my picture on a gossip magazine cover. Why wouldn't God love me and accept me? We feel like we are better than whoever. Fill in the blank. That's comparative righteousness. And we do that in an attempt to deal with guilt. Last way I want to, to think about for just a second. Uh, A last attempt at dealing with guilt is people oftentimes try to medicate themselves. You, You hear those words and you think drugs and alcohol, and that's true. People do use drugs and alcohol to medicate themselves. But people also use things like exercise. They use things like shopping. You know what people like us use? We use our piety. We use our religious practices. We use the fact that we go to church. We use the fact that we tithe. We use the fact that we teach Sunday school. We use the fact that we're an officer in our church. We use the fact that we read the Bible and we pray. Here's the question we all need to be asking ourselves. Why do we do what we do? Could it be because we are trying to deal with guilt? Why, Why do you get angry? I've actually thought a lot about that this week because I've been angry a lot this week. I've been angry a lot this week because it's fall break, which means two of my three kids are home for two weeks. Asher and Anna, they're both in high school, and they're home for two weeks. But Asher and Anna aren't really doing anything during fall break. They're basically hanging out at the house, making a mess, watching TV, playing video games, not washing their dishes. They're, they're destroying my life. And i got to be honest with you, those things are worth thinking about and talking about with your kids. But as I've thought about it, I've thought, I'm not just angry because they're doing these things or not doing things I want them to do. You know what I'm angry about? Well, I don't even know that I'm necessarily angry. I, I feel guilty. I feel like a failure is a father. I mean... First of all, they're at home for two weeks, and I simply don't have the time to spend with them, to do things with them. But it's not just that. As I think back over the last 20 years of my life and my relationship with my kids, I would say that confession characterizes my entire relationship with my children. I've never really spent a lot of time with them. I've never turned the computer off. i is never too strong of a word, but oftentimes I, I, I haven't turned the computer off. And I've sent them off to play video games or to watch TV so I can do what I think is more important. And so when they walk around my house and they do nothing, they're just doing what they've learned from me. And the consequence? Guilt. That manifests itself in anger so what about you why do you do what you do one pastor put it like this he said so much of your anger is rooted in guilt so much of your shame is rooted in guilt so much of your shyness is rooted in guilt so much of your bitterness so much of your cynicism so much of your critical spirit is really rooted in guilt So much of what drives you is really your way of dealing with guilt. And here's the thing. None of these strategies that I've mentioned really works. I mean, sure, they they might take away the sting for an hour or a day or a week, but sooner or later you always hear the gavel drop and you hear the words of the judge, your Guilty, because guilt is infinitely more powerful than any or all of these strategies. So what do we do? Well, David tells us in verse 5, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What's going on there? In a word, it's repentance. Repentance begins with seeing your sin for what it is. Twice in Psalm 32, David describes his sin. First in verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 5. And and what I find interesting is that David uses three different Hebrew words to unpack for us what sin is. He uses the word sin, and then he uses the word iniquity, and then finally he uses the word transgression. And I think what David is doing here is he is pointing out to us sort of the 3D nature of sin in our lives. We, typically, we want to minimize our sin, but David says, no, you need to see your sin for what it really is. The word that is translated sin describes sin in relationship to the law of God. Literally, it means coming short or falling short of the mark. In David's day, the term was used in archery to describe a person who shoots at a target, but whose arrow falls short. In Psalm 32, the target is God's law. And and, and sin described by this word is a failure to measure up. It It is missing the mark. The word that is translated iniquity describes sin in relationship to ourselves. Literally, it means corrupt or twisted or crooked. And what David is saying is that sin is not only corrupting or twisting God's law, but it is also corrupting and twisting ourselves. Spiritually speaking, sin dislocates us from God, and it causes all kinds of pain and damage. As sinners, we are both twisting and twisted creatures. The last word that David uses is this word that's translated transgression, which describes sin in our relationship with God. It literally means a going away or a departure, or as in the case of Psalm 32, a willful rebellion against God and His authority. David is painting a picture of revolutionary war, but it is not a war between the founding fathers, the British, and us but it is a war that is initiated by us, between us and our loving Heavenly Father. Now, why all this talk about sin and guilt? Why does David paint for us such a vivid picture of sin? It's because David wants us to see what sin is. He wants us to see the seriousness of our sin, He wants us to recognize the fact that we need more than behavior modification. We need more than a technique. We need our hearts transformed. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need what theologians call sanctification. We need God, by His grace, to renew our whole person in the image of God and enable us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. That's what it means to see your sin for what it is. We also see that repentance is owning your sin. Again, in verse 5, David owns his sin, right? He says, my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. He doesn't try to escape responsibility. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He owns it. In the words of one of my professors, what happens when we are finally convinced of our need for forgiveness, is that we begin to use the first person singular, me, my sin, my iniquity, my transgression. We use avoidance language no longer. And lastly, and and this is really the heart, repentance is trusting in God. In verse 5, David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And in verse 1, David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 5 says, I uncovered my sin. And verse 1 says, and God covered it. Now, I can't speak for you, but that's very, very hard for me to believe. That God would cover my sin. Why? Because I don't trust God. What what do you think God wants from you? Most of us think that what God wants from us, especially when we find ourselves face-to-face with sin and guilt in our lives, is we think that God wants us to try harder. God will forgive us, but we have to commit ourselves to never doing that again. Folks, where did this idea come from that we've got to reform ourselves? Where did the idea come from that we've got to change ourselves and rehabilitate ourselves? In his commentary on the book of Galatians, Martin Luther writes this. He says, when you are confronted by your sin and you go to God, do not presume henceforth to satisfy the law as one who intends to live a better life. What's Luther saying? He's saying, if you think God's forgiveness is somehow connected with your future faithfulness, then Christ is of no value to you. And yet, isn't that what we do so often? God, forgive me, and I promise I will never, ever do that again. Folks, that's not repentance repentance begins with trust that's what god wants from you that you that you would take him at his word that you would wholly lean on jesus name god wants you to cry out with david you are my hiding place you preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts deliverance it's not about what I do what I promise to do it's about you and what you've promised to do one of the reasons that I asked that we read 1st John 1 8 and 9 this morning is because when you think about it it is another stunning passage that 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 complements Psalm 32 so well and in 1st John John doesn't have any problem with giving us the bad news he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. Those are pretty hard words. Those are pretty firm. Those are pretty black and white. But in these two verses, John also tells us something amazing about God and his grace. In verse 9, John writes, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us, or to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about those words for a second. Why do you think John describes God as faithful and just to forgive our sins? I think if I was John, I would say God is faithful and He is merciful, or God is faithful and He is forgiving, or God is faithful and He is loving, or God is faithful and He is kind. But John says... He is faithful and He is just. If God is just, wouldn't He just give us what we deserve? This is what's so amazing. On the cross, Jesus paid it all. He didn't just die for some of your sins. He didn't just die for most of your sins. He paid for all of your sins. And what that means is that if we trust Jesus, if we look to Jesus in faith, God not only won't punish us, but He can't punish us. Why? Because Jesus already paid it all. And if God were to punish us for something that Jesus did, has already paid for, he would be getting double payment, and that wouldn't be just. But God is just. That's why John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What what I hope you see here is that John is really just echoing what David writes in Psalm 32. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now let me close with this. My guess is that most of you know everything I just said. This is church. Richard's your pastor. You know you're a sinner. You get all this stuff. And yet, you read these words... and they don't they don't seem to capture your imagination they don't seem to cause your heart to sing why is that could it be that you're trusting in your repentance hmm. are you trusting in your repentance you read the psalm and you think to yourself, I see what David is doing, I should be like David. My only problem is is I can't be like David. I know myself well enough to know that I really do sin just like I breathe. If If I spent all my hours in confession, I couldn't confess every sin I commit. And here's the thing, I don't know myself well enough to be able to confess every sin that I commit. What are you trusting in? You're trusting in your repentance. Folks, this is the gospel. You can't exhaustively confess your sin. You just can't. Jeremiah tells us our heart is desperately wicked that we can't know it. And so, what David is saying here, what he's not saying, is he's not saying, be like me. But he's pointing us ahead to another David, to a greater David, to a son of David. In Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is in the desert and he's baptizing folks. He's baptizing them with the uh, with uh, he's baptizing them with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows up and he says to John, "Baptize me." John looks at Jesus and says, "No way! You should baptize me." But Jesus insists, and and, and Jesus is baptized. He is baptized with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why is that? Why? Why is Jesus repenting? Why is he submitting to this baptism for the forgiveness of sins? It is not for himself. He has nothing to repent for. He is is sinless. He is perfect. So why is Jesus repenting? I'll tell you why. He's repenting for you. He's repenting for me. He's repenting for your sins. He is repenting for my sins. You see, we often think about... The fact that that Jesus has come to take away our sins. But what the Bible tells us is that he's also come to take away our our corrupted and sin tainted attempts at righteousness. And he clothes us with his righteousness. Friends, what you and I need to realize is that even at our best, our most heartfelt honest, open prayers of repentance, they need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Which means that our hope can't be in our repentance, but in Jesus' repentance for us. And what that means for you and for me this morning is that we can come to Jesus just as we are. We can come uncovered. We we, We can come... With nothing in our hands Jesus isn't waiting for you to get better he isn't he doesn't need you to get better because Jesus didn't come for righteous people he didn't come for people who try real hard he didn't come for good people he didn't come for nice people he came for sinners who know they are sinners but look to him in grace When you and I get that, we will be enabled to come to Jesus openly and honestly. Singing the words that we are about to sing. Out of my bondage, sorrow in night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Into Thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to Thee. Out of my sickness, into Thy health, out of my wanting and into Thy wealth, out of my sin and into Thyself. Jesus, I come to Thee. That is repentance. That is the good news of the Gospel. Father, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but you've spoken to us. Thank you that you say things to us that sound repetitive, things that we, we sort of already know. Thank you that you repeat them to remind us of the truth about ourselves and about you. Thank you for our King, the greater David, Jesus, who lived for us and who died for us in who at this very moment stands in Your presence and prays for us. Would You help us to rest in Him, rest in His goodness and grace, rest in the forgiveness of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.